This thing's hard. I'm not gonna lie. It's taught me a lot about myself. It's taught me a lot about my competitors. It's taught me a lot about my teammates. I've seen grown men cry. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast, the weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo, welcome to episode 104 of the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's talking about grown men crying. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of Semi-Pro Cycling, home of the Semi-Pro Cyclist, and you can find this episode at semiprocycling.com forward slash basics. Now, the performance probe is how we're going to start the show this week. And Article 1, how Eric Marcotte won the US Pro Road Championships Part 1. One by Adam Mills. This article covers a breakdown of the 2004 edition of the U.S. Pro Road Championships and the execution of both general strategy and precision tactics by Team SmartShop. The article attempts to cover how the race played out and the strategies at work on the day. So the race itself, 103.6 miles, 166.7 kilometers long, but once the riders start to get going, you're really only looking at about two hours of hard full throttle work. So you're talking four and a half hours maybe in the entire race, but two hours of hard work. So the strategy element here is deciding when that hard work happens. And it's really important that you have to conserve the limited time at full throttle. And in a race that long, this is one of the main deciding factors. Other factors that went into this race that made it interesting was the weather on the day, 84 degrees Fahrenheit, 29 degrees Celsius. And That really isn't too hot, but you combine this with humidity and you have a warm, muggy day that can really affect riders' hydration. So this is an important factor to consider, especially considering the length of the race. The final constant in the race is the normal favourites. And the big important thing is that they don't have the full support of their respective teams. So in a national championships, the favorites are always going to be pro tour riders, but the U.S. Pro Championships only allows U.S. riders to enter. So because of the multinational rosters that the pro tour teams have, you have someone like Taylor Finney on BMC, all of a sudden doesn't have many teammates around him. Same for a Canada rider like Ted King. All these riders then are now isolated because domestic teams have a large number but not the quality of pros on hand to race at this race. So the advantage favours whichever group is best able to leverage their strategy and make the US Pro Championships more wide open than many realise. The race itself was three set circuits which makes easily distinguishable beginning, middle and end and... Kind of, this is how it plays out, but we're not going to go through all of it today. Remember, this is just part one. So the beginning, and the beginning of the race, as you would expect of such a big event like the US Pro Championship, it's 
on from the beginning. So this is when teams and riders try to place themselves into a strategically advantageous position to win the race later down the road. So either a breakaway or they're pushing the pace so that a breakaway doesn't get away. Because the teams that are not well represented or don't fancy their riders' chances in a break will need to devise a strategy to keep any gap manageable if a break occurs, which inevitably a break will get away. So while this is all happening, the riders that don't have a team around them, the Pro Tour riders, are relegated to sitting in and waiting for something to happen that would offer an opportunity to impact the race later on. If we go back now to Eric Marcotte's race, we can start to have a look at his power numbers to see what was happening in the beginning of the race. So if we talk about Eric's FTP, as expected, the opening was fast and fierce, starting with Eric's first jump and lasting until the break was established. And around 20 minutes into the race, Eric's average speed was 28.9 miles per hour or 46 kilometers at a normalized power of 387 watts. That is super impressive. Also is impressive the fact that he spent time over 500 watts totaling around seven and a half minutes. So this is absolutely burning matches to get that break and get in the breakaway very, very early on. It did put him in the move and it was a really smart investment for Team Smart Shop to do this. And so once the move got away and it settled in, the overall intensity dropped a lot. And this is quite crucial to the end as well. Because once you're in a breakaway and you're able to be conservative, then you're basically just repairing the damage you've done to get in that breakaway. And then you're thinking about the finish. So again, if we look at Eric's FTP, we can really get an understanding that he was working well below that FTP for the majority of the time that he was in the breakaway. So what this shows was that he was able to contribute to a well-working breakaway that was gaining time on the peloton while maintaining an output of around 85% of his FTP. So effectively, he's recovering or conserving energy for any moves afterwards or towards the end of the race. So then we go back to strategy and back in the peloton, the other teams are deciding how they want to best handle the situation. And based on how many professional events are managed by the directors and raced by the riders, one of three outcomes were likely. And the first one, the advantage gets out of hand in this scenario. The break gains an unsurmountable advantage. The teams realize that the time gap is huge, but because of the conditions and the length of the race, there is insufficient horsepower to neutralize it. The peloton crumbles in the chase, no counter move ever materializes. This is kind of something that happens in the Australian National Championships every year, where it's a race of attrition and basically any form of a peloton crumbles by the time they get around to the second last or last lap and everybody just comes in and drips and drabs rather than a main sprint at the end. Number two, the move is held at a short gap and is caught at the end for some sort of field sprint. We see this scenario in most sprint stages in Grand Tours, just as the heartbreak for Jack Bauer in the Tour de France stage, 
I don't know the stage number, but it was heartbreaking. He lost in the last 50 meters. Maintaining a time gap like this means that the brake has to work really hard in order to maintain their lead and may not have anything at the end to put in a counterattack against the other attackers. Meanwhile, the peloton behind churns along, burning some riders in the process, but ultimately catching the escapees in the last kilometers of the race. And when they do catch them, the peloton finds the escapees completely exhausted from their efforts, effectively ending the race for them as the field sprint starts to wind up. Number three, the third option, the brake is held at a moderate time gap and is caught late when the peloton explodes. In this scenario, the true contenders will come from the peloton in a late counter move and will be fresher because they had the luxury of conserving energy for the majority of the race. And for the author, this was the most likely scenario of the US Pro Championships because of the conditions and because there was no team willing to lock down the break while declaring that they were the team to beat and they had their rider that will win. So this is in this environment where you would see attack by the Pro Tour riders, the ones with superior fitness and have been sitting in all day. The author does state that in reality, what he believes transpired in this race was a blend between one and three. And I'm going to leave it there. That is a super big teaser and I hate to leave you hanging, but Part two isn't out. It's hopefully going to come out in the next week, and then I'll be able to wrap this up with a few more numbers from Eric Marcotte, and we can see what happened after he was able to conserve that energy in the breakaway. But one really interesting thing that we can take away from this right now is that Eric had to work super hard to get into the breakaway, but he was able to save energy and face by contributing and working under his FTP. So this is a risky strategy, and once you're in that breakaway, there is a lot of other elements that you have no control of because this is what's happening in the peloton and what they do from there. So it'll be really interesting to see what happened between these two groups. Article 2, well, it's not really an article. It's a team race protocol and it might come in handy for those riders in a team out there so I thought I would just list it out and then you might be able to use it when you have an upcoming race or you can put it together and discuss it with your team so that you can form some sort of protocol which means you have consistency going into and out of races and you're able to record that information and make sure that you are learning from your mistakes. So if you start with the week leading up to an event, team management sends out any race information that they have, maps, profiles, weather forecasts, etc., so that everybody has the same information. And everybody is then asked to take a look at the course and think about the suitability to their riding skill and current form. Of course, this is more of a self-managed team. Outside of this, if you had a more professional team, they would be making the manager, DS and coaches would be making the decision for the riders. The day before the race, team management to arrange race day meeting point and let everyone know where that is and confirm the meeting time. It's really important to get a team together the day before a race so that everybody is on the same page and all of the pre-thought and thinking about the strategy gets into the riders brains early so once they're under pressure they know exactly how it's going to play out for the team on race day the pre-race one and a half hours before the race start arrive at the venue and go to the arranged meeting point 
One hour before, 15 to 20 minute team briefing points to cover. So this is just a confirmation of the day before and dealing with any changes that may have happened overnight. Talk about the race route, the weather, the wind and other conditions. Review the team's strengths and weaknesses for that course conditions. Who thinks they'll perform well on course and who won't. Also review the competition, who's there from each team and club, what are their strengths and weaknesses for this course and conditions, scenarios, who is the best chance for success on race day. Make sure everyone has one to two tasks for the day and they cover major stages of the race, early stages, critical stages, climbs, crosswinds, etc. and the finish. Who is the race captain and who are the protected riders and discuss key information that will be communicated across the team during the race, roadside signals, etc. So then we get into the race where team communication is very important and depending on where you are racing, you may not have radios, so you may have to rely on the people on the side of the road and in the bunch. So if you try and stay in pairs where possible as a minimum, it makes it easier to disseminate information and communicate, communicate, communicate. It's all about communicating between each other and execute your tasks as discussed, but be ready for changes and instructions communicated by the race captain during the race. Post-race, no talking about what happened in the race for 30 minutes, good or bad. Cool down, get a drink food, get changed, compose yourself, and then 30 minutes after race finish, 10-minute post-race briefing, what did we do well, what can we do better next time? Now, if you were a manager or a DS and you wanted to record this information, then it would be good to have a central place to put a lot of these mistakes and things in, but I understand a lot of this is on the fly, and if you're in the middle of a stage race, then it becomes quite difficult and probably wastes a lot of time actually recording this stuff because it won't get used. But if you have this regularity of these meetings and people knowing they only have to remember one or two things during the race and they should stick together and listen to other people, then you start to form a bit of team bonding here and understanding of how everybody communicates together and then how we can all learn off each other. Okay, the nuts and bolts for today. Back to training basics with Max Tester. I should say Dr. Max Tester. This is based on a presentation by Dr. Max Tester. And if you don't know who he is, he's a doctor from Italy that started out working in Italy before collaborating with Italian professional cycling teams in testing and training in the late 1980s. He then served as team doctor for 7-Eleven, Motorola, MG, Technogym, ASICS, and MAPI. He moved to the U.S. to start the U.S. Davis Performance Program. He served as a physician at more than 10 world championships, 18 tours to France, 10 editions of the Giro, and at the 2004 Olympic Trials. So he has been around, and I've got to say, He may sound like he's an old school guy, but he is really in touch with a lot that is going on now. He stays connected. In 2011, he was BMC's team physician. I don't know where he's at in the 2014 season, but he definitely has a continuing understanding of how training methods are changing over time. But saying that, there is no real groundbreaking stuff in this presentation, but it is a nice summary of his training philosophy and some basic science. Dr. Tester has a great ability to simplify the information he's presenting, and I believe that he does have a deep understanding of how the body works, but the way he communicates this makes this information accessible to a larger audience without removing the important stuff. 
So he starts out by talking about some training facts, things that he believes are true or he has found to be true over his career. The first one, training is for everybody and everybody gets better with training. This is just removing the myth that some people don't adapt to training. He believes that everybody will get better in some way from training. The next one here, training is not an exact science. Everybody responds differently to different training. True that. Absolutely, training is not an exact science because there are gaps in the science that is out there and between these gaps, this is where experience, some intuition and maybe a little bit of luck helps as well. There's no precise training model. Each training overload triggers biological signals and your body gets better and develops adaption. High inter-individual differences Absolutely, between every single writer out there, you have to look at them as an individual. There is no way that you can prescribe the same training to a group of people and expect them to all perform the same. The psychological stresses are difficult to be evaluated, but like I've always said, are a huge limiter, and I'm glad he recognizes that. And there are other environmental factors and health factors that go into training that change the way that people train and adapt to their training. Basically, it comes down to getting better is getting faster in cycling. And this is the result of induced adaptions, changes in the structure of the function at multiple levels of heart, muscles, lungs, etc. And as we know, being cyclist, it's an aerobic sport and they're hard to judge the adaptions of. It is easy to see some guy that's got big muscles and you know they must be strong in some way, they're not always super strong, but it's hard to see the changes and it's only something like an output metric like power that we need to understand the way these adaptions are taking place and what the result of them is. Interestingly, he has this to say about pro training, that pro cyclists are the ones who need the least scientific training because they train 25 hours per week. They ride all different terrains and conditions and in the 25 hours they challenge all the different elements that they need to be training. It's a very simplistic way of looking at it. In some ways, it's true. If you are sending a rider out there to do hard rides, they're going to be having exposure to a lot more variety. They're going to be anaerobic, aerobic. They're going to be doing five-minute efforts, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, hour efforts. The thing I don't agree with that is you aren't measuring these specific areas and you aren't looking for specific adaptions to take place that are based on the individual and their weaknesses, limiters, or any areas that you want to improve because what is really valued and needed to do well in their event. He does go on to say, though, that if you have less time, you will hit a plateau pretty quickly. So your fitness will fairly quickly plateau out if you're just training generally and you're not focusing on any specific areas. But once this happens, that's when you need to start changing the way you train and getting a little bit more specific and scientific about the way you train. When he starts to talk about the prescriptions that he gives for training or anybody gives for training... He admits that there are a lot of different models of training and coaching out there. 
And there are some cyclists that become coaches and do exactly what they've been doing over their riding career because they're thinking that if it works for them, then it must work for others. But I really believe that there needs to be a unique approach to each athlete and this may not be what you have done yourself in the past. There can definitely be some similarities, but there are a lot of other factors that are unique to each person, which we will touch on in a moment. Another thing to note is that A really big pivotal moment for me as a coach was when I stepped outside of the this is how I used to do it mentality. I've spoken to other coaches about this, specifically about the moment that you start prescribing workouts or overall training load that you've never done yourself. And then you need to have a solid understanding of training principles and the science behind these prescriptions in order for you to trust that you're going to get the result that you're aiming for and for the athlete to trust you. But Dr. Tester spends time reinforcing that a big base is very important for long-term development. In the short term, you may be able to get away with training your system to tolerate more pain by doing a lot of intensity, but you will quickly burn out this mechanism. And so this is where a base picks you up. So then he runs through his training performance model and it's a three-part breakdown where the first one is understand the physiology of the athlete via the different energy mechanisms. This is done via testing. Number two, he then models the most successful athlete in their sport or discipline looking at the composition of the different performance element needed to be successful. And then number three, he prescribes training to simulate all of those elements. So it seems pretty straightforward and it's pretty much how most of the performance models that I've talked about in the past work and how a lot of coaching works and I do a similar thing. It might just be slightly different here. When we are talking about prescription of workouts, there's the part of the adaption and how it actually takes place and how we actually get better. And Jack allows principle of supercompensation was developed in the Eastern Bloc countries and some principles survive today of their philosophies around how to develop talent. The first one is talent identification and the second one is training optimization. And this is still practiced today, not just by those countries that developed this protocol back then. It's practiced in many countries with smaller populations, but also in larger countries that have less of a talent pool to draw on in a specific sport. Something like weightlifting in China is an example that comes to mind for that one. But an interesting point that he makes here is that creating champions from a small talent pool means you put a lot more resources behind each athlete, which can yield better results in the end. Compared to a large country which has a lot of talent, athletes might not get the support they need because there's no need to select the best methods because naturally the cream rises to the top. But back to the principle of supercompensation, it consists of four phases. The first one is training, which is a catabolic phase. It's where you put your body under stress and cortisol is released to help and support this training, but it also masks any damage that is being done so you can get through it. Number two is recovery, and this is an anabolic phase, and it's the repair that your body gets from resting and eating correctly, where you release testosterone and growth hormone and IGF-1 
time to ensure that your body is adapting to this new stress and then can raise up another level. And this is in the third phase, the supercompensation phase, where you reach a slightly higher level than before. And number four, the final phase, loss of supercompensation. If you don't do anything after this adaption has been made, then you just return to where you were and eventually you will go down and down and down. And on the flip side of that, if you continue this supercompensation cycle again, training will reach a new level again and again and again. So this understanding of training adaptions was put together in around 1977 and it is more or less still accepted today. But there are some principles that Max Tester goes by. In order to improve an athlete, he believes that you really need to respect these principles. Training load has to be increased over time, progressive overload, and this is where we see the beauty of the performance management chart giving us a visual representation of exactly how our fitness is increasing because we are overloading our system. Respect for the adaption time, so recovery on a larger scale or hard and easy within specific sessions themselves, specificity, I've covered this a gazillion times, modulation of stimuli, which in other words is periodization, so different times of the season having different stresses, individualized plans through different training or the same training at different intensities, and consistency. Consistency is pretty much number one in my books. But to take you back to Tester's performance model, he brings up the physiological factors that influence cycling performance based on a model by Coyle from a paper in 1995. But he doesn't go into that much depth relating to this model because once you start to see all the pieces, you wonder how it's possible to measure all of these things. And I'll run through them quickly so you know what I'm talking about. Physical abilities, performance velocity, resistance to movement, performance power, performance VO2, functional abilities, lactate VO2, VO2 max, lactate threshold power, economy of movement, gross mechanical efficiency, and finally, morphological components, capillary density, stroke volume, aerobic enzyme activity, distribution of power out and technique, and muscle fiber composition or percentage of type 1. Yes, these factors do make a difference in performance, but he focused specifically on the following performance determinants in cycling, which are measured via power at threshold or FTP. And there are three determinants that go into an FTP. Your VO2 max, the size of your aerobic engine, the fractional utilization of VO2 max or sustainable percentage of VO2 max for 20 minutes plus, so in an aerobic zone. So it's not just about having a high VO2 max, it's about how much of it that you can actually use while you're riding and your economy, watts per liters of oxygen, how efficient your body can produce the watts. Because everybody talks about VO2 max on its own as being the mythical number that's going to predict the performance of a cyclist. But a note on testing that, if you are a young athlete looking to see whether you have potential in an aerobic sport such as cycling, then maybe you will have a look at the VO2 max. Tessa talks about a possibility to change your VO2 max by 10 to 15% with training. So if you do testing and your number that you spit out is 50 then you're only going to be able to increase that by five or seven and a half, where if you're 65, then you have a better chance of getting up into the 70s because here's some benchmarks for VO2 max, fractional utilization of VO2 max, economy and FTP. 
a Cat 3 rider will have around a VO2 max of around 4.5 litres of oxygen per minute, a fractional utilisation of 80% and an economy of 75 watts per litre for a total of 280 watt FTP. That might be a little low for a Cat 3, but you get the idea where a pro is going to have a VO2 max of 5.5 litres of oxygen per minute, a fractional utilisation of 85%, an economy of 80 watts per litre, and a total FTP of 380 watts, which again, these are just generalisations, but you can really see the idea that how these three determinants really do impact your FTP. So because this end product is not just limited to VO2 max, a high VO2 max doesn't guarantee a fast cyclist and we all know this and I recommend getting excited by FTP numbers rather than VO2 max numbers. Okay, so he rounds out the discussion here with his training parameters. And again, there is nothing new here, but I'll run through them anyway. Volume, more important in the early phase of a road cyclist career. Intensity, power, speed, heart rate, lactate, RPE are key factors in most cases. Density of work to rest, frequency, times per week, and recovery is the most important. So there you have it. The conclusions here are that Training is a gradual process finalized to improve performance. Training overload has to be precise. Training is a multifactorial and specific to athletes and sports. Training improvements follow the respect of the training rules and monitoring training is necessary to verify effectiveness. So I hope you got a little bit of gold out of all of that. He really does have a great way of presenting the information. I hope that I've done it justice here. All I've tried to do here is just give you another framework that you may be able to use in your own training from someone that has been at the top, has touched a lot of top riders and influenced a lot of riders' lives. So now the tech hacks and products section, and we're talking about a product this week and slightly tech because it's an app. It comes from a company called App Uncture. I'm not kidding, that's the name. But anyway, it's a 99 cent app and it's for mountain bikers. It's an app that records your bike setup, as simple as that. It's geared towards mountain bikers and you can record as much or as little information as you want, including holding on to your specific pressures for your suspension, your tires, not just the make and model of the bike, but the entire suspension setup as well. I actually like having apps like this where you can record all of this information. It's in a place of its own, so you don't have to stumble through your notes on your phone or in your computer or whatever to find it. It's just all there, neatly presented. I think this is the best way to record information, not just for something like a bike fit and recording your position so that you can just uh, copy it every time you put your bike together, but also this suspension stuff is really, really important as well, and it goes through a lot of details. It goes through travel, sag, sag percentage calculation, high-speed compression, low-speed compression, rebound, air pressure, spring weight. It's not for the people that just ride bikes and don't even think about suspension, but it is for those tweakers out there, the ones that want to get it right and maybe under different conditions want to set their bike up slightly differently, but don't remember exactly how they did it last time. It also covers testing, so not only testing 
of the suspension, but also testing of tire pressure as well and the conditions, the trail where you're at, the trail difficulty, temperature, weather conditions. So it really does encompass all of the important stuff that you would need if you're going to be tweaking your bike bit by bit and you get excited by this stuff. So I'll put a link in the show notes so you can check it out and really for 99 cents, how can you go wrong? Now that quote from the top of the show, it's Alex Howes, one of Garmin Sharp's resident hipsters, aka JV Juniors, talking about the tour. Garmin Sharp haven't done a lot in this year's tour, which is an absolute bummer, but nearly as poor a showing as Green Edge. Ouch. But talking about Garmin Sharp, apparently there's going to be some big sponsorship changes for the 2015 season, and we just found out the first one, no more Cervelo bikes. They're moving to Team MTN Quebecer for next year, and I really wonder what company is going to jump on board with Garmin Sharp or whatever they're going to be called. But... That's it for me this week. You have been listening to the Semi-Pro Performance Podcast. Remember to head over to semiprocycling.com forward slash basics to find any links used in this week's episode. Until next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. (laughs) 